0: to Philippine X in Wellness. For episode 23, Philippine X in Wellness presents discussing developmental disabilities with our very own Rina Bautista and Dr. Claire Kamaya. Our opening track that you were just listening to was Balanced by Classy um, on the Dirty Cortez EP album that you can purchase directly from beatrockmusic.com. Website or Bandcamp. At this time, I would like to introduce my co-host, Cheryl.
1: Good day, everyone, Maayong Adla, wherever you're tuning in from throughout the globe. I'm Cheryl Sampson Ramirez. My chosen pronouns are she, her, she. My maternal lineage is from Misamis Occidental in Mindanao. I'm a quarter Chinese through my mom's side, and my paternal lineage is from Gapis on the island of Benai. I'm currently streaming from the traditional territories of the Tongva and Kich people in the city of Los Angeles. With regards to my current access needs, I have chronic intermittent lower back pain, so stretch break has been incorporated midway into our episodes to accommodate for that. I'm also a visual kinesthetic and experiential learner. So when we're doing live video streams, visuals and live demonstrations demonstrations are embedded to accommodate for folks with similar learning styles. I'm a licensed clinical social worker working within education and a registered yoga instructor. Today's wellness check in is who is one female identifying Individual that has influenced your wellness journey in honor of Women's History Month. And for me, I would say one female identifying individual that influenced me in my wellness journey is one of my first uh, acupuncturists, Rose Palma. She really helped me to get more familiar with Chinese herbs, East Asian herbs, cupping, and acupuncture. And ever since I saw her, I've been hooked. And now I would like to take the opportunity to introduce my co-host, Ryan Loren.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Cheryl. And everyone globally. My name is Ryan Loren. My chosen pronouns are he, him, his. I'm currently streaming from the ancestral lands of the still-living, still-sovereign Munsee, Lenape peoples, communities, and the nation here in West New York, New Jersey. I'm a professional yoga teacher over 10 years, rooted in Chicago, all the way to the West Coast in the Bay Area, and now currently here in the New Jersey market. As of right now, I don't have any current access needs, but Obviously, just regular, just being here physically, mentally, and spiritually in the space for you all, just vibing and being in the present moment. Um, so when I'm outside of teaching yoga, I know work for a marketing firm uh, based on HR recruitment, uh, employment branding, and diversity recruitment strategy. I'm currently thrilled to be sharing the space with you all, and I'm super stoked for our guest this evening. Um, an influential person in my life um, is one of my good dear friends. Um, I'll have two, Miss Ashley Kohler and Piper Lori Parker. Um, these were two women um, in my path of my yoga journey, and I owe them. Um, deepest gratitude for all of the things that they've shared with me in terms of
2: my teaching styles
0: and how it's progressed over the years and just giving me that constant push um, to be a yoga practitioner and be in this space so again thank you to ashley kohler uh, and piper um, i'll take it away cheryl
1: Philippine X in Wellness' vision is to support the wellness of the Philippine X community through resource sharing, podcast streams, and partnerships with professionals and organizations in order to live healthier, happier, and more fulfilling lives. If you're not following us already, please feel free to follow us at Philippine X in Wellness with a P, ending with an X in Wellness, all one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And on Twitter, via the handle at PhilippineX, the letter N, the word well, followed by the letters N and S, all one word. Unique to Philippine X and Wellness, we honor this safe space by asking everyone to speak and listen respectfully from your heart throughout our time together. This pre-recorded session can be accessed through our Philippine X and Wellness and SoCal Filipinos YouTube channels and on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to our Philippine Exton Wellness' YouTube channel as we're over halfway toward our benchmark of acquiring own domain. Woohoo! And thanks, Rena, for the extra subscribers. For our listeners, we'll be sure to share any questions that you may have front-loaded our team with prior to this episode. Please keep in mind that anything that is discussed today is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare practitioner for your particular condition, especially before starting any exercise or new health program.
0: Philippine X in Wellness was formed to provide a dialogue around topics that really affect wellness in our Philippine X community. We're here to also highlight Philippine X individuals and organizations that are actively doing wellness work. Again, to our audience, please DM us your questions in advance via, via Instagram prior to each episode so we can make sure to include them in our recordings. Without further ado, today's guest speakers are Rena Bautista and Dr. Claire Kamaya.
1: Rina Bautista is an education specialist for students with moderate, severe disabilities at a public high school in San Diego, California. Her mission is to prepare students to transition from high school in areas such as employment, education, and living skills. Claire Kamaya, who holds a doctorate in education, has been an educational therapist for over 20 years, and is the director and owner of Doors Educational Center in Orange County, California. We would like to welcome to Philippine X and Wellness for the first time both Rena Bautista and Dr. Claire Kamaya. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hello. <laughs> so do you do either of you have any current access
3: needs as well for t- tonight's show? None for me. I'm just really honored and thankful to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. And Rina.
3: I'm good, mm-hmm. and I'm very
1: excited to be here. Great. Okay, so in alignment with our wellness check-in, this is our tradition that we do with Philippine Ex-Wellness. And also in honor of the first day of Women's History Month, Who is one female identifying individual that has influenced both of your wellness journeys? And we'll
2: start first with Rena, followed by Claire. Well, I have to be like Ryan, I can't just share one person, I have to share two. My mom, she worked, a single mom growing up and she uh, had three kids, nine to five job, but she worked out like every day to her Jacqueline aerobics classes, to walking on the track. So she's retired now and she works out still like two, three hours at the gym. And I hope to be like that when I retire. And I also have to say that um, um, Heidelin Diaz, the first Olympic lifter for the Philippines, who won gold, she won gold for the Philippines and such an amazing feat. She is so strong and it was just so inspiring to watch her because I, myself during the time was also doing some Olympic lifting training and I did my first uh, meet during that time. So it was very inspiring.
3: Sweet, what about you, Claire? Um, As far as women who've supported my wellness journey I'm in the same boat, I can't just choose one. (laughs) But I have a, actually a group of women, and I don't know if I can say this, but I we lovingly refer to each other as the PECs. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, we're kind of split up on two coasts, so half of us are on the East Coast, so we call them the East Coast PECs, and I'm one of the West Coast PECs. <laughs> and we're just kind of a group of women who... Um, keep in touch on a daily basis, just we kind of commiserate together, we share our joys together. And, you know, we've been through a lot, we try to take trips together as part of our, our uh, wellness journey. Um, You know, and and one of the things I do have to say is um, COVID was, you know, really rough not being with each other. And we we lost one of our girlfriends um, to pancreatic cancer last year. So, it just, it was very heartbreaking, but it just kind of reminded me of what a wonderful group of women they are and how important it is to, to keep those bonds and those ties.
1: Yeah. Thank you so both so much um, for sharing and, and especially for that intimate detail, Claire, you know. Um, I'm glad that both of you have strong women to like support your wellness journey and inspire you from girlfriends to moms. Thanks
0: again for sharing. Awesome, thank you, thank you both for sharing your your, your um your shares with us. Um, so let's let's get to it. Let's get to the bulk of tonight. So amazing, y'all! Uh, I'd love to ask and start uh, and ask you both, um, where's your family from in the Philippines, and where are you currently streaming from? So we'll start off with you, Claire, and then Rena.
3: Sure, yeah. So um, on my dad's side, um, my family is from Dagupan in the Pangasinan province. Um, On my mom's side, uh, my mom was kind of a military brat like I was, and so she moved all over the place within Luzon, and she eventually landed also in Pangasinan where she met my dad. I was actually born in the Philippines. I was born in Olongapo, and I came to the United States during the military wave when I was uh, just under two years old. And currently I'm streaming from Orange, California.
0: Thanks, Claire. <laughs> what about you, Rena?
2: So my um, my dad is from the city of Balawig, Baliwag, excuse me, in the province of Bulacan. And he immigrated here in the United States in 1976. And my mom is from a barrio named San Guillermo. Gale- 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 in a town of Morong Rizal and she also immigrated to the United States in the 1971. And I am currently streaming from Chula Vista which is down south just a few minutes away from the Tijuana border. We're just both super excited to have you both on
1: you know on this episode and on our stream because we've actually never included guests from San Diego and Orange County for the first time on our platform so we welcome your regions on to our our podcast and just definitely for um, to open up our community to the Philippine ex populations that live in these areas. As we open this episode in alignment with March being Developmental Disabilities Awareness Month, why don't we start off with defining for our listeners what exactly are developmental disabilities? So... For this question, we'll start with Claire and we'll follow it with Rina.
3: Sure. Yeah. So I think defining developmental disabilities is somewhat profession based. So it kind of depends on what professional circles you're in and the purpose of those diagnoses or labels in terms of access for the student. So in my field, um, we view developmental disabilities as sort of a broad range of disabilities. They can be physical, behavioral, emotional in nature, and they might include diagnoses such as ADHD, autism, maybe a vision impairment, in some cases, fetal alcohol syndrome, to name a few. Um, and these can be comorbid as well. So often we'll get Students diagnosed with both autism and ADHD, for example. Um, And we usually view developmental disabilities from the perspective of them being a lifelong condition, something that the individual lives with. Um, And then those conditions can then impact learning development. So you might have a student with a developed mental disability diagnosis that also has a learning disability diagnosis, such as like a speech and language impairment or a specific reading, writing, or math impairment. Um, um, And learning disabilities in my practice are generally viewed as something that can be remediated to varying degrees, whereas the developmental disability label might be something that is a lifelong condition. So that's sort of how in my practice we differentiate it.
1: Great. And uh,
2: Rena, would you like to add to any of that? Uh, Claire really uh, defined the definition of of developmental disabilities very clearly. Um, But just to add that it's also very clearly defined in legislation. And since I work in the a public school, which a lot of you know entities that work with people with disabilities is it we look at the the label right like that's what so I work with students who have you know very specific disabilities intellectual disability cerebral palsy epilepsy autism and and, you know sometimes they'll have like secondary disabilities too, and and they look and you know it's all um, very. you know, deficit model as well. So like, what is missing? What, what, is necess- what, what do we need to work on? And uh, so that's like what we have to follow. That's where like the funding goes, if they have that label. Um, but personally, and I think a lot of people who work with in this field, they try to look at the student first. Uh, what they're able to do, they don't think about the, you know, we try not to focus too much on their weaknesses or those those deficits. And then also a lot of those people, they want to identify like in their own way, how they how they view themselves. So maybe the person will say they have autism, maybe they'll say they ha- they're neurodivergent, maybe they'll say, you know, other things, maybe they won't even mention it. So um, just to add to that.
0: Thank you for sharing. Um, Arena and Claire, so let's let's dive deeper, you know, into obviously your your biographies. Um, how do you both professionally support individuals with uh, developmental di- um, disabilities? So let's start off with Arena and then and then Claire.
2: Okay, so um, I'm an educational sp- education specialist, also knows as, as a special ed teacher special education teacher. I work primarily with students with moderate to severe disabilities at a public high school. Uh, So I'm their teacher. I work, you know, I assess them for their needs. I look at, um, you know, their IEP goals. I'm in charge of, you know, running their IEP once a year. Um, What else do I do? I, you know, because I'm in a high school, uh, I'm preparing them for what's after high school. So we look at like employment opportunities, we look for um, recreation, leisure activities in the, ca- in that, in the community. Uh, we look for ways how they can access those things, whether they take the city bus, the trolley, if they use um, some kind of like, you know, where you can order like a, a special bus or a special, like, you know, um, uh, way for them to get around kind of like, Like Uber, but but for like specifically for a person with a disability. Um, Who else? And uh, we just, you know, I I I teach in a classroom. My classroom is they call it a a a self-contained classroom where all my students have a disability. However, at my school and a lot of schools, we include our students in classes that you know best you know that are appropriate for them that they you know they want to be in that they'll learn you know the goals that they have in other settings um and the school that i work at you know they're they're very opening and wonderful and they let you know and we we put them you know we we help them participate in just school activities um you know like sports and uh,
0: cheer things like that awesome thanks rena And Claire?
3: Currently, I run an educational therapy practice in Orange County. We have been in practice since 2010. It's a private practice. Um, Pre-COVID, we had two locations, but we've kind of consolidated everything. So we're now located in uh, Rancho Santa Margarita where we share um, a suite with um, uh, other professionals in the field of serving students with special needs. So within our suite, there's our educational therapy practice. We also have a couple of educational psychologists, some occupational therapists, and from time to time, we'll have some speech and language pathologists as well. Um, Prior to opening doors, I was a reading specialist at at a school exclusively for middle school and high school students. And prior to that, I did educational therapy, and so I kind of wanted to return to educational therapy um, because I liked having a little bit more control in the one-on-one setting with the students was something that I really enjoyed. Um, So in our population, uh, we work, as I said, one-on-one, and our primary goal is to remediate specific learning disabilities. Um, So access to our services doesn't always depend on a diagnosis um, because we are a private practice. However, it is definitely something that there are some barriers to. So there's the financial barrier because we are private. Um, There's also the time and all of that. Um, And I would say like if I were to explain what we do exactly from start to finish, we usually will receive a referral for a student who needs some sort of services. Maybe they're not doing so well in classes, or maybe they have more um, extensive needs because they have an a diagnosis that calls for more help in academics. We'll receive that referral either from the school or from um, a private professional. Um, some of the ones that I mentioned, for example, like psychologists, OTs, and speech and language pathologists, and we will possibly test to them. Um, we'll. Uh, provide some academic evaluations and an analysis of those evals. Um, And then we recommend and design programs for them. We run those programs on a one-to-one basis. And then we'll collaborate with the school and any ancillary services, um, other service providers that the student's currently working with so that we can kind of come together for um, a more holistic program for the student. And then we also offer parent training and support as requested.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to follow up with that. Um, You know, knowing that for the past, you know, obviously past couple of years, we've been dealing with hard times and dealing with um, gaining access to resources. What were some of the ways that you've been able to pivot and offer services to your students amidst, you know, all things COVID, right? Um, How were you able to really just nurture and and provide um, help um, and services for your students during those times. Start off, Farina.
2: Oh yeah, that was two years ago and it was uh, definitely a surprise, right? Something that we were not prepared On doing, but I feel like our district, our school responded as quickly as possible where they got everybody access to, you know, a Zoom account. They got students to get laptops and, you know, uh, Wi-Fi or um, hotspots. They were, you know, they passed all those out and they tried their best to like do as much training on like how to use Zoom and how to teach, you know, remotely. And it was, it was really hard. It was a lot of like, talking with colleagues, you know, what they were doing, doing a lot of YouTube, you know, like how to do things. Um, and uh, just working with parents on how they could set up like their laptops and their hotspots and all of those things. And it was it was a huge challenge, but like I said the district, our the district I work with, they they tried to set all that up for the support for the parents for the for the um, for all the you know, teachers and staff. Um, and we kind of just figured it out. We just had to figure it out. The students themselves too, they had to figure it out. They had to figure out how to like be on Zoom. My students uh, were amazing. They, they just uh, they just figured how to do things like, you know, even just turning, like logging into a Zoom meeting and turning on their cameras and sharing their screens. I mean, they, I was like, you know, I was kind of hoping like they would just teach me, like we were teaching each other. Um, so that helped. I think for the beginning of COVID, it was more like just staying connected, reassuring their safety, um, keeping that, you know, keeping everybody trying to just stay positive and, you know, ta- you know addressing if they were feeling anything negative, um, reaching out to families that maybe were struggling, um, you know, but like, you know, I'm sure in a lot of communities, they were setting up stuff just to reach out to everybody
3: yeah, I'm with Rena on that. I mean, we really talked a lot and shared resources at the beginning. Um, and I think that was a big part of it. All the educators were kind of in it together, so we were sharing a lot of um, information across <clears throat> across different professional groups, too. And so I think that was a big help. Um, our practice was a little bit lucky because prior to Covid, we had a few students, who we had been seeing in office in person for a number of years, who had moved um, to another state and didn't want to give up services, so they had asked if some of our staff would be willing to do something remote. And so we had a little bit of an edge in that some of our staff had already had some experience using and sort of learning and building on their own um, what. Um, a a remote session would look like. And so that information was shared as well. Also, we kind of had our our ears to the ground in terms of COVID earlier on, like in um, December and January. And we started moving a lot of our materials, um, scanning them and moving them onto digital platforms so that we could access them ahead of time. So that was really helpful too. Um, I will say that... um, we did lose a lot of students who just could not do online. And you can imagine it's already pretty difficult for a typical student, um, how much more difficult it might be for a student who might have a a developmental disability or a learning disability. Um, But surprisingly, some of our students who I wasn't sure were gonna be able to do it really pivoted well and actually enjoyed it. And I think, that's one of the benefits in my practice of being able to do one-on-one. I mean, kudos, I was telling Rena the other day, I really don't know how you manage a classroom full of students, I could never do it. And when I sort of decided to go back into ed therapy at some point in my life, I, I had done student teaching and it was during student teaching where I had to juggle so many students at the same time and write IEPs for them during my student teaching time, I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm a type A person and I need one student at a time so I could put all my focus on that one student. Um, so that we're lucky in that regard because Zoom is a little bit easier for us to do in a one-to-one setting. I can't imagine how Rena and other classroom students who have multiple kids at a time do that. <laughs> like my hat's off to them. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I I, I rush through my question the, the question asked about what do I do as my job um, I, I don't do it all alone. I work with a great team at the high school I work at. I work with three other teachers and uh, we all have assistants who, are, you know, they've been working for a long time. Everyone, you know, this is their profession. This is what they love to do. And they're, you know, they have the experience and they're educated to work with with our kiddos. And so, and then we have, we also work with service providers. So, you know, our speech and language pathologists, our occupational therapists, our adapted PE teacher. I mean, there's, you know, there's lots of services that our students are able to get, uh, at, the, at, at the high school. And then, you know, I, I want to also mention, you know, that our students, they, they transition from, you know, elementary to middle school to high school. So they've had, you know, they were diagnosed usually at a young age with their developmental disability, and they go through the years, you know, uh, progressing in age and as in grade level, um, assessed every year to make sure they still qualify for special education. And that's done as a team. You know, a school psychologist is part of that team. And then um, they meet once a year, and that's the IEP. In case we didn't clarify that, IEP stands for individualized education plan. So in that plan, has you know the parents' concerns and their goals. The team talks about their progress from the previous year. What are areas that need to still work on and then you get towards in their high school time where you're really thinking about okay what's going to happen after high school so then they create a, a transition plan and that you know is you know part of what all ieps need to have at in at the high school age and that's a big part of what I do. Like I mentioned, like I really, um, you know, try to prepare those kids for what what they need for after high school. So when I, like I breeze through saying that I, you know, we look at job, you know, job opportunities. Like I'm actually out looking for job opportunities for our students and setting that up where they can work there, um, you know, with different employees. And you know, it's challenging because you have to, you know, go, you know, like. Go on foot, finding these places for kids to work at, and just asking for people to like give them a chance to have this job opportunity to like gain some work skills. And we, and um, you know, fortunately, we've had um, grants that pay for the students to work there. Um, Like I mentioned, I have staff, so the staff will go with the students to teach them how to work at that job site and again, teach them how to use public transportation you know, and then expose them to maybe like post-secondary education. So maybe we're visiting community colleges, uh, you know, talking to other students who've graduated, uh, what are they doing or when they left uh, left the high school, what are they doing after high school? Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, just listening to, from the very beginning, Claire breaking down the definition of developmental disabilities and how broad um, of a definition it encompasses so many varying disabilities. And I just my mind is just blown from all the information that you all have shared. Like and you know, as we're approaching even like the first half of this episode, and um there's just some things that stood out too, uh, Rena. I think you mentioned also how there's like a deficit approach in looking at this, and and then I just think that's sad sometimes that we look at not the abilities of these individuals, but sometimes the disabilities and, and the labels that are used to also access funding and, and yeah, just all the bureaucracy that's involved. I'm just contemplating and like reflecting on all the things that you've mentioned. And even the relationship that you both have with each other with your, with your careers, you know, Rina mentioned working in an educational setting at the high school level. Um, Claire, I, I didn't get what um, age group uh, um, are the students that you work with?
3: <clears throat> um, they vary. We do from pre-K, and we've had all the way up to adult. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, and and you know just to kind of piggyback off what you're seeing, Cheryl. Yeah, it is um, disheartening sometimes. Some of the language that we use, and it can be really triggering language. Even the term disability, right? And impairment, all those terms. Um, it, it makes it challenging, I think, to view this, the student a certain way. Like, you know, they're, they're, these are students, people who, you know, need our support, who are part of our community. Um, I think when you've done what we've done for a really long time, um, I've worked with, you know, some of my students, I think I shared with you guys the other day that um, I have a student right now, probably my longest running student who I've been with for 10 years. And he said to me, it's our 10-year anniversary (laughs) one day, very sweetly. And, you know, I think about students like that young man. And I think, you know, after a certain amount of time working with students, um, the relationship changes. You know, it's not so much, you know, initially I, I used to think that my focus was more on helping the student to be something society needed them to be. You know like whether it's like they've got to do social skills a certain way that's acceptable by society and they have to learn to read because this is what society expects of them and while that is definitely a part of it and and to a big degree important for them um i think the guiding question at the time was only how do i make them fit in and be productive citizens whereas now you know these students i've had for so long you get to know them it becomes more than a one way relationship. And um, you get to know their families, their interests, their feelings, their pain. You care for their well being. Um, and so then, while it's my job to teach the skills that are going to allow them to access society in a way, it's probably even a greater responsibility for me to learn from them and to bend to their needs and to just kind of become their community, you know? It's not me trying to make them become a member of a community that they don't already have access to, but it's just, it's more me becoming their community. So, you know, we often try to keep in touch with our students through the years. They they know our email addresses. Their parents send us emails years later telling us so-and-so's, um, you know, he's a firefighter now. Um, I got that email not too long ago, and that was really exciting. So... You know, just kind of shifts. I think the view, the viewpoint, and the job changes as you get to know the individuals.
1: And I'm glad that you bring that up, Claire, just because, you know, oftentimes, or I felt like when putting this episode together, um, what stood out were both of your similar professions. Um, I know, Rena, you're an educational specialist, and then Claire being educa- educational education therapist. But I think what I'm hearing what's coming out of you more is what's beyond the profession. And although Rena mentioned so many things that you all both do for a, a huge amount of varying disabilities, um, I think what I just heard you say, Claire, was the human factor beyond the, the labels. And and I hope in this episode as our listeners are listening in that um that comes out comes through with interviewing both you both Claire and Rena in showing to us as a community how we can really recognize and bring to light not what's the deficits as as you mentioned Rena but also the gifts and the specialties that people living with these barriers are also have to offer to the world and the society that we live in. And so going back actually to the professional uh, part and side of things, I'd like to hear from both of you. What sparked your interest in working with individuals with developmental disabilities? And was there all of a sudden an aha moment that you woke up to and you were like, You know, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life? Or were there certain events that led up to making this decision? So we'll start with Claire on this
3: one and then follow it up with Rita. I remember the exact moment. (laughs) So I went to UCI and I got my undergrad in in women's studies and English lit. I was a double major. And my dad goes, What are you gonna do with that? (laughs) And I was like, Okay. Um, I don't know. So before I decided, you know, maybe I should go back to school or I'm not sure, you know, I didn't know which direction I was going to go in. I thought, okay, well, I better just kind of get some work experience. So I sort of stumbled into educational therapy right off the bat. Um, I was a little bit late in the org- this particular organization's hiring. And so they hired me on to be a, um, a tester. So I first learned how to do academic evaluations. And on my first day of work, I was walking down this narrow hallway and this little boy, I, I remember his first and last name, but I'm not going to say it for, um, for confidentiality reasons. But he was he was Filipino American. He was probably about seven years old at the time. And my friends who are listening, who I worked with at the center, who I still keep in touch with, will know exactly who I'm talking about. But he kind of stopped me in my tracks and he said, "Um, what's your name? And I couldn't tell if he was talking to me because his eye contact was off um, somewhere else. And I was just like, who are you? You know, looking around going, who are you talking to? But he was talking to me. And so I answered. And at the time I wasn't married. So I said, you know, my name's Claire Kagiwa. And this little boy walks away and goes, "Um, Claire Kagiwa's first day of work was July 5th, 1998. I think that was the date, but he kept repeating it as he walked away. And I thought, huh, that's odd, you know? And then about, um, I would say about six months later, after the testing rush, the company said, hey, we're going to send you to get some clinical training so you learn our programs and you learn how to work one-to-one with the students. So I did that, and the little boy ended up on my caseload. The same little boy had been there. So I started working with him. I essentially joined his team, and um, over time, and his team, you know, all of us, we talk um, in the faculty lounge. You know, we chat about like what we notice and things like that, and we all started to notice these interesting things about this young man. He was rarely what I would say maybe is, maybe this is the wrong word, but rarely present in our space. Like he almost often seemed like he was staring into space, thinking about his own things. He would hum a tune. He would be kind of laughing to himself, but looking away. And we were working with him on language comprehension. But we started to notice these little things, like he had a talent for numbers and dates in particular. And so, you know, months later, the, when I started working with him again in that setting, he said, Claire Kamaya's first day was July 5th, 1998. And I was like, oh, you remember that? And then he started to list off everyone else's first day who was on his team and everyone else who no longer worked for the company that he had met. And we were just like, what is this skill that he has of like, you know, recalling? So we sort of started to test it out a little bit (laughs) just to see how far his thinking went. And he would say things like, oh, this particular date, you know, August 15th, 1995 was on a Sunday, for example. And we were like, how do you know this? And we would look it up to see, you know, was it on a Sunday? And then we started to ask him, hey, what day of the week was this particular date? And he could nail it. Like he would just think for a couple seconds and just get it. Wow. And somehow, and he was so, now I understand he was a savant. But as soon as I met this kid and started to learn about him, I knew I was just like, I want to know more. (laughs) I want to crawl inside your brain and understand how you think. Like, how do you see things? And what is this like special skill that you have? So that's my sort of story where I was like, okay, I got to know. I got to, I have to understand this world somehow. Yeah. I'm so. at
1: seven. Gosh.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool kid. He's probably in his early thirties now, <laughs> like late yeah.
1: 20s, maybe early thirties, I think.
3: Yeah. I'm trying to do the math in my head, but I can't. But um, yeah, he's... Yeah. Once in a while, I'll get a, a message from a friend of mine who works, who used to work with me then. And she'll say, hey, I found him on, you know, Facebook. <laughs> and we'll take a look and go, oh,
1: wow, look at what he looks like now,
3: you know? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but that's my story. That's kind of how I got interested in, in learning more.
1: Wow. I mean, you know, as you were talking about that example, Claire, I was thinking also, was it the movie Rain Man? (laughs) Yes. So you were saying the word savants. Can you define maybe for our
3: audience what that is? Yeah. So it's a term that's often used for um, someone, often someone who, but not always someone who has a diagnosis of autism, who has just this special gift. Um, and often it'll be with, in my experience anyway, I've worked with a lot of students um, with, with the diagnosis of autism or on the spectrum. And um, the savants who I've known or who I've recognized as savants have often had a gift, particularly in math. Um, and I have one student um, who I've worked with for a number of years who is really gifted in music. And so, I mean, perfect, perfect, perfect pitch. And I could ask him to sing a tune in a particular key yeah. um, and he can nail it. Um, or if he hears any any key, any, any note, he can tell me exactly what key it is and which octave. <laughs> like that's, to me, it just blows my mind. <laughs> wow. And
1: what's interesting is that music and math both kind of have a mathematical aspect to them and, and precision as well. So I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that savants um, tend to be highly gifted in, in math and book music. And what about you, Rina? Um, um, what made you decide to work with individuals with disability, development,
2: developmental disabilities? Well, my first boyfriend had a sister who, uh, who had, um, of developmental disability she was older than us but she was like super tiny just super sweet and she was really the first person that i was close to that had a disability and at the time i was also at uc irvine and there was a club they were promoting all the clubs on the campus and there was one club called best buddies that they were promoting and i was like oh that's interesting what is that it had this really cute little like um you know um, two people holding hands and I thought, what is that? And I went to their informational meeting and it is it's a club that pairs college students or students or people uh, with others with developmental disabilities or with disabilities. So I was paired up with someone um, this young lady who was my age we actually had, uh, you know birth the same birthday month and we were we were buddies for my entire college career beyond and beyond she went you know she went to my wedding uh, we've lost touch since but she, uh, but joining best buddies was the start of my like you know like oh this you know maybe this is something that like aside from just a club something that I could really pursue as a career. so I got to know. One of the teachers uh, of the students that we were paired with, she worked at the high school down the street from UC Irvine, and she was she was the teacher. She'd been the teacher for like you know it was almost thirty years, you know, since you know. So she was a teacher for a while in the same you know uh, uh, in the same school, and she was always just so happy you know, loved her job, loved what she did. I could see what, she, you know, the kinds of things she did in her classroom because I eventually, after graduating from high, from college, went to work as an assistant um, in the classroom. And so I could see all the things that she would do. And then I eventually joined, um, they, they started a transition program. So that was for students in her classroom who left the high school setting, um, and they weren't quite ready to be in an adult program. And I can talk more about that in a, in a little bit that whole process. But anyway, so it's a transition program that I became the assistant for there. Um, just really enjoyed my time working with the students. We were going to we were going to classes at the community colleges with them. We were taking public transportation to different job sites. We were going on, you know trips on the train to San Clemente and all their places. just, you know, just living uh, you know, life after high school. And then I decided, okay, well, I think this is a career that I could really, you know, you know, do. And she was getting ready to retire. And she was talking about how she was building her own casita, like in Temecula. And I was like, she is a teacher and can build her own house, like, and she's retiring. So this sounds like at least a job that I can like, you know, live off of and be comfortable with and still like have, you know, work, you know, work and enjoy my life. Right. And do, do something that I'm passionate about. So, so I ended up um, going to school to get my credentials and ended up in San Diego.
0: Thank you for sharing both of you. Um, now as we, as we, um, Get a little bit deeper, right? Um, what has been your family's response? Like your parents, you kind of touched uh, upon this earlier, um, Claire. But what were your family's response to your chosen career path? Your 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 lane, um, and how did that come come with um, in talking to your parents about the route you wanted to take? So. Start off, Rina.
2: Oh well, my my story is pretty short. Uh, my you know my parents were very supportive of the career that I chose. Um, they helped me set up my classroom. You know when I when I first came to the high school that I'm at, I still have like some of the materials that my sister created to decorate the classroom. And and just now, you know, like I'm I'm married and my you know my husband and my kids. Um, they support me because they, you know, they, we, they give me an outlet to talk about my day They're, you know, they give me ideas on what to do in my classroom. My husband makes me coffee every morning, which I cannot like, that's like one great way to support me, just feeding me and giving me coffee. So I'm ready for my day. Um, but, uh, yeah, they've always been, um, uh, very supportive of, of my career choice. I mentioned that, um.
3: You know, my my parents initially were not sure, they, they were always supportive of going into education and wanting to teach. Um, but when I had finished my BA, they didn't know what I was gonna do and neither did I. And I think that was mostly to their dismay because they were just like, you should know what you wanna do before you go to college. And I sort of just jumped into university took the classes in the majors that were most interesting to me and didn't know what I wanted to do with that, if, I, if it was gonna be towards a job or what. So I sort of fell into educational therapy. And then during that time, didn't know that educational therapy could be a ongoing career for me. And so I you know, got married um, and during my first pregnancy, worked on my master's thinking that I was gonna teach in a classroom. I um, had two boys and then decided, okay, I'm going to finish up my um, MA. And as I had said before, I, I started to do some of my student teaching. And then I ended up getting a job as a reading specialist in a school for kids with autism. And at some time around that point, I, I realized I didn't like the classroom setting. It just wasn't for me. And I really wanted to know, to be able to choose a little bit to some degree the population I was going to work with and because I kind of know started to understand my wheelhouse like this is what I know how to do and this is what I'm good at and these are the students that I want to touch like that I want to you know reach out to and make sure that I, I am able to impact their lives and so I decided um, I wanted to start my own business and that was sort of an unheard of thing I think I was scared to, to take that leap because it takes some financial backing, but it's scary, you know, just kind of starting your own practice and not knowing, not being able to rely on a steady paycheck. Um, but my dad and my mom, their response was really great. I mean, they were essentially like, go for it. What do you have to lose? You'll always have a home. And that was the green light for me um which by the way when they said it it gave me a lot of pause with regard to how powerful generational wealth is you know like if if i was just kind of an incoming immigrant and you know all that stuff and i didn't i wasn't established that would be much harder so i don't understand how people can do that um without that sort of generational support um but i had some level of that at this point and my parents were like you know we have a home what's the worst that can happen you guys move back home if your business fails, just go ahead and give it a try. And so that's sort of how it happened. And um, I started the practice in 2010 and it's been we've been through a lot of ups and downs. It's not easy. Um, and I'm still learning as far as which elements of owning a business I, I like and which ones I hate. Um, and so it's just an ongoing thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad I went that route.
1: Wow. Well. Thank you both um, so much so far for what you've shared with our our listeners. And thank you all for joining us this evening with Philippine Exit and Wellness. Uh, we're talking with Rina Bautista and Dr. Claire Komaya. So don't go away. We'll feel free to take a quick stretch or trip to the bathroom. And we'll be right back after this quick break.